everyone and welcome to episode 3 of the Eggshells Podcast Companion. This is an audible companion to Eggshells Pro Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome, uh, a book that's all about every wrestling show that's ever taken place inside Tokyo's Big Egg. My name is Chris Charlton and on this podcast we have a different guest every episode to look at a different year in Tokyo Dome history. This year it's 1991 and I'm joined by um, a, a, a fountain of knowledge, um, a podcaster, an announcer, and uh, a person on the internet, uh, Mr. Alan Cunahan. Thank you. Thank you for, for hopping on and uh, on short notice as well. I am nothing if not a person on the internet. That is, uh, that is factually correct, right. I would say. 95% of the time, especially now that I have uh, finally got on board with the smartphone phenomenon as of the last uh, month, and I now am in fact the proud owner. No, not really proud, but I am the owner of a smartphone. You're like um, everybody, all the sort of Japanese dads. You're like Satoshi Kojima and Jushin Liger, who like resolutely not joining the, the modern bandwagon until recently. You know, Chris... There's nothing you could have said to compliment me more. Yes, I am <laughs> there. Like Jushin Liger, Satoshi Kojima, we we were reluctantly using smartphones and we are absolutely not playing Fortnite or whatever that thing is that everyone plays. But, yeah, but you will, though. Do you know, and like I was reading Liger's... It may be like 15 years of a yeah, well past but, the point. No, not even because I was reading Liger's autobiography and there's like a clear like page in that where he goes on a scree against like social media. <laughs> you know, he's like, I hate social media in all its forms. I don't know what it is. I've managed, like, the company make everybody do it, but they've given me an exception because I, I hate it. I hate people taking pictures of their food, just eat your food. And that's exactly what Liga does on Twitter now. It's just, here's what, here's what I've had for dinner. Um, and then, yeah. And that, my favorite one was, like, Kojima getting a smartphone and then realizing it did emojis. Um, and then going, I can just, <laughs> yeah. And then he posted, like, two tweets that was just, like, the bread emoji. <laughs> I can do this on this. It's amazing. Um, yeah, it is amazing. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we're gonna dis go away, um, you know, throw away the smartphones and everything like that because we're hopping on the time machine to 1991. Uh, in this episode, um, where was uh, where was Alan in in 1991? Please say you were at least alive at this point because I think you are younger <laughs> than I am. I was I was very much alive. I was uh, six years old uh, as of June 1991. So we're talking about one show when I was five and one show when I was six, I think, ah. uh, or two shows when I was six. And uh, yeah, I uh, I would have been getting into the early stages of my wrestling fandom at this point. VHSs of late 80s WF pay-per-views would have been rented out and uh, some episodes of All-American Wrestling and WF Superstars would be definitely getting watched on, on the TV for sure. Wow, okay, okay. So uh, but when was your sort of introduction to the, the Japanese end of things? Um initially super initially it would have been when eurosport was airing the uh new japan matches as part of the ring warrior series with mm. the great gordon soley sir oliver humperdinck craig the george commentary uh in i think 95 94 95 96 yeah. kind of years i remember specific i have two specific memories one seeing jushin liger and two 
seeing Eddie Guerrero in a pink and black singlet and thinking he was Bret Hart with a mustache, but being really <laughs> confused why he looked right. kind of different. Yeah. And the Liger one, I didn't specifically remember until I got a Power Slam magazine in like 1998. And this would be really when I started actually beginning to understand what Japanese wrestling was. And uh, they had like a load of stuff at Liger. And I was like, hey, I recognize him. He was on that Eurosport thing. And uh, then it was just kind of a thing that I knew existed until the Wrestling Channel came around in 2003, 2004. And that's when I started getting big into it, Pro Wrestling Noah. And then soon after that, Dragon Gate. And I would say I only became a New Japan fan. Like New Japan I didn't really like until like 2007 when Tanahashi started to take over and Makabe went on his big run and the Gata was awesome. Um, I remember there was a show in early might have been early 06 or late 06 some kind of time around there when like they had orlando jordan brought in for a show and i was like oh god new japan is like so crappy yeah. uh but it was like right after that they started to turn yeah. around it might have even been on one of the early 07 shows when tanahashi wrestled uh nagata and that was at that point i started to become a big new japan fan then like as the 2000s came to a close, I was watching everything and mm-hmm. right into this decade where, yeah, Japanese wrestling is is my main cup of tea. It's my bread and butter, I would say. Yep. Uh, does that hop into pop culture? Were you familiar with the, the top pop song of 1991, Oda Kazumasa's Oh Yeah? Oh Yeah, Oh Yeah, Oh Yeah. Japan, yeah. unless yeah. unless it was the closing music on uh, the December SWS show, which had this <laughs> amazing closing video. Uh, unless it was that song, I'm not familiar with it. Right, right. I love it. Um, like there's interesting sort of production, royalty-free production themes from the '90s. Um, I I've become sort of an expert on really through writing this book, you know, because um. The, I, I noted, uh, I think when we did, because I recorded the 92 episode ahead of time, and I think I noted this um, to Paul Lazenby, but like the the opening video to PWFG Stack of Arms is the most 1990s thing you're ever going to find. Um, and it has quite the jam on it, but it's also like music that's that's used for at least a couple of women in, in the All Japan Women's Tokyo Dome videotape as well. Um, okay. So that, oh yeah, all right. I recognize that. I think it was like a Alundra Blazers entrance music on that tape. Uh, if it, it's, if it's, if it's, it's all early nineties, it sounds like my cup of tea and right up my alley for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah. So we're going to start our journey on this episode in March of nineteen ninety one, uh, just after Alan Street Fighter two hit arcades. And Street Fighter 2, a game which I am still undefeated in whenever I use Honda. Just... Slaps. There you go, because we're going to talk about a controversial sumo figure later on in this episode, I'm <laughs> sure. But uh, yeah, as as what we do on this uh, on this podcast is... 
um you know i usually tend to throw it to the guest first um and we nominate one match or one particular figure of interest uh on each card to talk about um so for you from from 1991 what what took your fancy on ngp on new japan wcw starcade normally a december event is wcw starcade but new japan wcw starcade in tokyo dome uh happened on march 21st 1991 um, so what took your fancy on that show? The thing that jumped off to me immediately when I read this card, and I, I kind of knew it, it had happened on this show, but it, I wouldn't have been fully sure of it until I, I saw it there. And that was the Steiners versus Hase and Sasaki match, which is a very famous match. And I was like, well, this has to be the one that I'm going to rewatch from this show because it's it was a Wrestling Observer match of the year. It's a match that... Rob Naylor, my good online buddy, has been touting the uh, pra- or praising uh, the greatness of this match for years and years, and specifically a lariat in the middle of this match, which he considers the greatest lariat in the history of wrestling. And on rewatch, I will say I was disappointed that it is not, in fact, the greatest lariat in the history of wrestling, but it's a pretty good lariat. It's a lariat. pretty stiff, yeah, it's a pretty good, he got him pretty good, did Sasaki on, on Rick, right? The, the Sasaki lariat. On Rick, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's a, it's a wild match. It's very much, it would have been one of the early matches of this style with like the likes of the Steiners and, and Hase in Japan, which was just kind of all about trading bombs back and forth essentially and spectacular offense as opposed to any real form of intricate story yeah yeah i think you're right and like probably it became a hallmark of the steiners because like a couple of years well steiners is specifically with hase right because like a couple of years later um you had you know hase with with muto against the the steiners and that's when like they popped out the steiner screwdriver as scott did um and then in this match as well, like it's interesting watching it and listening to the commentary because like the, the commentary all the way through is talking about the Frankensteiner, you know, and, and really just framing Scott Steiner as this guy that can do this incredible move. And it's like, oh, you've got to see it, see it to believe it. It's impossible to describe. Like he's using his opponent's momentum against him. It, you know, it's, it's remarkable. Um, and then, you know, that that's the, the finish of the match. But like, yeah, you're, you're right. Just even the announcing framing the story as like, it's about these guys doing moves, but you know, big guys doing meaty moves as opposed to smaller guys doing flippy moves, which is you know what we get today. Yeah. And it was really kind of running concurrently with the evolution of the junior heavyweights as well, with the likes of Jushin Liger and uh, wild Pegasus and Scorpio guys like that were a, a lot of what they were doing were, were moves and, uh, sequences that hadn't been seen in wrestling before and kind of came to a head a couple of years later when there was a a big Steiners versus Liger and Benoit match on a New Japan show, which I believe is the one with one of the nardiest Steiner screwdrivers of all time. Mm. Yeah. The one that broke one of Jushin Liger's horns. (laughs) It was that that impactful. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was uh, like, I think it was an influential time in wrestling and style of match. And I mentioned that it was the Observer Newsletter match of the year for, for 91. Um, I believe that's correct. It, it certainly got a, a very high rating and uh, was highly touted amongst newsletter readers. But I, I definitely, when you go back and, and read old Observers, 
Dave mentions a lot when talking about matches and justifying why matches were good. Mm. The, the phrase, they did a lot of hot moves, or they did a lot <laughs> of hot new moves, right, okay. is used a lot. Right. That was a real, for considering this is kind of the era where, or even the last 10 years or even more, it's considered the era where you have old timers talking about Oh, people do way too many. Oh, nowadays, it's all mm. about people doing moves, and this like it's way less about that now than the trendy stuff of the early nineties. Mm. If you go back and read the likes of Dave in the early nineties, it was all about what hot moves you did. Like that was way more important than telling a story or selling or anything, and all that stuff was secondary. It was all about the hot moves. One of those hot moves, including like Sasaki doing a superplex to Hase. On top of Rick Steiner. <laughs> yeah. Just like fucking hell. A, like not fun for any party involved. Um, but B, yeah, one of those things where you're thinking, like, even within the context of this wrestling match, it's probably not the smartest thing to do, you know? Um, yeah, you had that, and you had Steiner, Scott Steiner's uh, beautiful Tiger Driver, and you had Hase's always awesome uh, Uranagi yep. that he throws, the Northern Light Suplex, which was a relatively new. Uh, move at that point and it was um like it was just kind of trading back and forth until eventually the Steiners were the ones that, that won out yeah yeah and uh, you know I mean people think about this this card like really it's the, the main event that grabs the headlines with Fujinami and Ric Flair and, and that dusty finish stuff nobody talks about like the greatest 18 championship on the on match on this card, which is just a bizarre clash between Ricky Choshu and uh Taiji Singh. I don't know if you like you rewatch this at all. Um but it's it's just a weird like they build it as a death match. Like it was kind of a, a no holds barred, unsanctioned kind of thing, which means like there wasn't a referee about. Um and they just sort of beat each other up to the point where, you know, Choshu sort of KOs Taijit Singh and like he he wins because the crowd count to ten like they deliver a standing ten count and and that's it <laughs> and then you uh, well yeah I guess Ricky Joshu's won the the title but also like prime Ricky Joshu swearing in this if you're not familiar with the the match Alan are you, are you familiar with with Ricky Joshu's command of the English language you know I never classed Ricky Joshu as like a ghetto type of of. English potty mouth Japanese wrestler. It's, it's brilliant. But just, just I, in the middle, like, son of a bitch, I kill this motherfucker. Like, in, in, in his, wow. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I never, I never saw such a sight of Choshu in all of the Choshu I've seen. But that's, I, I, I might need to go back and watch more ninety-one Choshu to get to get a feel for this. Right, Ricky Choshu, like, kind of famously just never likes working with foreigners. Um, you know, and he's, he's sort of said as as much. He always finds it difficult to do you know and um maybe i don't know how much of it is like crotchety old man racism or like how much of it is just you know he finds communication a, a difficult thing to do but uh you know that's ironic chris because isn't he a foreigner himself well yeah yeah naturally he's japanese but uh korean born yeah and yeah um, yeah yeah fired koji kitawa so for, should... for racism so <laughs> yeah <laughs> He shouldn't be so. Uh, he shouldn't be so so unwelcoming. Right. Well, you know, Rick Choshu is Rick Choshu, um, as Goto Hashi will um, testify. I think. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So let's move moving on from that to just nine days later. 
So, uh, I mean, no sort of pop culture update of what's happened between March 21st and March 30th, 1991. But like really just nine days later, which, which really sort of blows the mind. Um, the, I don't know, the, the hoops bar, the, the balls behind this of like SWS A running the Tokyo Dome at all. Um, and then D's doing it just right like a week after New Japan um, was crazy. But like SWS was crazy. Um, I mean, what what's your sort of level of familiarity with, with old Super World Sports and Hachiro Tanaka's Vanity Project? Okay, here's my uh, capsule of what I know about SWS and how I frame SWS in my mind in terms of its placing in Japanese wrestling history. Tenru doing great things in all Japan. Tenru lured by a rich eyeglasses manufacturer to form a promotion around him. Said company get embedded with the WF. And then you have all these weird shows, which are kind of like WF shows, but happening in Japan and featuring Tenru and his various buddies. And then some random guys who just obviously caught Tenru's eye, like Ultimo Dragon, up and down the card. And then eventually the WF guys kind of go away. The name goes away and Tenru starts war, which has some semblance of SWS in that it has a lot of his buddies, the the lumpy heavyweights of Japan, I would uh, class them as, and uh, also guys like Ultimo Dragon. And in SWS, I always knew there was a couple of big Tokyo Dome shows where they used a lot of WF guys. The WF guys came over, did North American-style matches for the most part, didn't really make adjustments for the crowd or to uh, cater to the Japanese-style of wrestling, and it was never really any good, but there might have been a few hidden gems in there that I needed to go back and watch and mm. occasionally did and would see them from time to time, including one match, which we're going to talk about later. And uh, including one match, which we definitely will talk about later, that I don't think I had seen before and watched it in preparation for this and really enjoyed. So that, I suppose, is my all-round knowledge about SWS. Yeah, I mean, like... In a, in a nutshell, you, you you've kind of got most of it, but um, you know, I think like what a lot of people sort of equate SWS with the WWF stuff, and like if you take WWF out, there was a lot of what people liked. What people liked about War, people you know would find that in SWS, and so there was this concept really of putting Tenryu in charge of, of gathering all of these people. And so you had like real, like hybrid wrestling because there was no, there wasn't a structure of it. They didn't have a dojo. They didn't have anything else. They just had a shit ton of cash. Right. So it was just, we're going to open the checkbook and get as many people, mainly from all Japan. Um, but also a bunch of other promotions, you know, and, and they had this, uh, a behind the scenes, sneaky arrangement with, um, with the UWF as well. So then you, what you, what that meant was you had like all of these factions in SWS and each faction represented a different style. So you had like Tenryu and his buddies was like revolution, which was like the core babyface unit. Right. But then you also had George Takano in charge of all the shooters and they were like Prodaistra and like, so that was a different style in the card. And then Ultima Dragon coming in. So like they, they were kind of trying to, to get like the, the, um, 
Oh, what was he, UWA, I guess, at the time? Dragon Wars? Perhaps. He would have been, yeah, he would have been doing, uh, he would have been doing some Hamada UWF um, as Asai yeah. without the mask in as late as 90, I've certainly seen. Right. So that Mexican connection could have, in theory, had we continued with this, like this, um, you know, this sort of innovative junior heavyweight stuff. So there was like a real sort of hybrid feel to this. But at the same time, um, Hachiro Tanako, who's like the very de- definition of a money mark, right? Like his entire thing from before he started SWS, he was like, we're going to run in the Tokyo Dome. Like he'd already decided it. And they couldn't fucking sell the Tokyo Dome. They- there was no way they could fill the Tokyo Dome. Um, they couldn't really fill Yokohama Arena. You know, they they were kind of really struggling to to put people in there, let alone the Tokyo Dome, which is, you know, a good sort of three times the size, right? Um, and Tanaka's, like, word to, like, his, his money man at the time was just book people that can draw the house. And the WWF were like, well, we'd kind of maybe like to experiment with running in Japan, um, albeit very, very poorly thought out in that regard. Um, and so that's where that connection came in. But you're, you, I mean, you're right in that this this WWF feel to, especially this first card, really drags down the show. It was such a chore to watch when I was writing the book because to to put it in. Sorry, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just these these plodding, awful WWF matches, and you kind of think that that's all SWS is, but it was actually like a lot more and what was strange is the sws marketing slogan for the first year was um straight and strong like it was this very sort of shoot style kind of like we're going to beat you up kind of thing and then here's like wwf guys not beating anybody up really looking awful you know what would be i think on a lot of levels i think it would work as a modern comparison if in the current climate um, especially uh, seeing uh, how Vince is clearly open to making deals with rich foreign people. Uh, but um, if a rich Japanese company decided to go to Minoru Suzuki and say, hey, Minoru Suzuki, leave New Japan in the rearview mirror. We're going to let you set up a promotion, build it around you. We're, here's a pile of cash. And then they did that. And then they got in bed with WF, and you had Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar and Braun Strowman coming over to Japan to work matches on shows with Minoru Suzuki and Suzuki Goon and random Suzuki friends like Hikaru Sato and people like that just filling out the card and maybe a, a Lucha connection in there as well. It would, uh, I, I think on some levels that would be, because I, I think Suzuki is on a similar level to Tenru was at, at that point in terms of, of stardom and uh, it, in terms of being in a company, but not really, I, I think Tenru wasn't really loyal to all Japan or not mm. that he wasn't loyal to all Japan, but he wasn't, he didn't feel the need to be loyal to all Japan when sure. money came his way. And I don't think Suzuki would feel the need to be loyal to new Japan. If mm. an offer such as that came his way. And I could kind of see it going a similar way with these kind of weird cards where you get a hybrid of different things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it 
sort of rings true to how, you know, I can imagine Vince approaching it the same way he approached like the national expansion of, oh, well, but, you know, we'll, we'll run some shows in Japan and, and then, you know, maybe we'll start touring in Japan. They, they did want to run consistently. Um, but, you know, just like when the, when WWF went, went national, and then, you know, it turned off a bunch of Southern wrestling fans who suddenly found themselves watching the same WWF. You know, it's like Vince McMahon presenting his homogenistic, like, product um, on a broader nationwide scale. But, um, you know, the difference was, like, in Japan, it was just so quickly, so openly rejected. Um, and both of these shows performed really poorly. Um, you know, that the, it, it really didn't last long. And, you know, you didn't really see the, the WWF sniffing around, sniffing around Japan again until, well, I mean, like they kept going with, with war um, and the remnants of SWS as well. But then like you, you didn't see, or you didn't hear word of that until, you know, very, very late in the 1990s. And then again, sort of early 2000s. Um, but what, uh, what took your fancy from WrestleFest 1991 in, in Tokyo Dome? Well, from the first card, the main event obviously jumps out in terms of names, but most of those names were present in something that I thought was was even more important on the second show we're going to talk about. So I went with something from the undercard, which I just wanted to see how this match would look in Japan. And that was the Rockers versus the Heart Foundation. And I spoke earlier about these WF wrestlers coming in and, and making no adjustments. And uh, this was really the case here because you had Anvil and Brett and Marty and Sean. And they're out there working a US style match with a chin lock spot in the middle of the heat. Hoping the crowd would kind of get behind the baby faces. He sought to make that hot tag. and just didn't really work in the same way in Japan. But... It was very. It was a very appreciative crowd in terms of they didn't, they didn't just kind of ignore what was happening. They politely applauded different things, but you could tell they they weren't emotionally invested in it. Mm. And the other striking thing to me was just how much this looked like a WF match and a WF event in that you had the the red, white, and blue ropes, which you also had at Stark the WCW Starcade, funnily enough. So I guess it was just an in thing in Japan at the time. But uh, the red, white, and blue ropes, the uh, Earl Hebner as referee, and yeah, the, the style of match the guys are working, it just seemed very WWF. Yeah, and I think probably that was a, a, a commandment from WWF. Um, where like the the wrestling summit the year before with all Japan, there was kind of a a little bit more compromise there, and I know that's mainly because like Baba like had veto power. You know, um, we talked on the last episode that the WWF wanted to call the wrestling summit the the wrestling super show, um, and Baba just said no because like this isn't a show. We don't do shows. You <laughs> know, like in that derisory sense. So they called it the wrestling summit. Um. Whereas I think, like, here, they were just, well, yeah, if, if our guys are coming over, we're going to tape all this shit for Coliseum Home Video or whatever. And it, it has to look a certain way, and it has to be this, and it has to be that. And I'm sure, probably, uh, the people at SWS were like, yeah, we don't care. Go ahead, you know, um, kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's almost like you have to watch those WWF matches on this card in a vacuum of, like, if this was in front of an American crowd, it would... Yeah, it would probably be okay. <laughs> it's a good, it's a fine sort of TV tag match. 
but like it's just so weird to see it in the Tokyo Dome. Absolutely. Um, but to to talk about we we referenced E Honda off the bat here, and um, yeah, I wanted to bring up the the clash of two sumo wrestlers on this card. Uh, not because like this match is particularly interesting and and not because this show is particularly interesting really at all um, in general, but like John Tenter and Koji Kitao, um, this was this, the sort of beginning of, of a spat that led into just uh, like about two or three late weeks later when SWS won uh, Kobe uh, World Hall. And uh, that sort of sparked the the famous Kitawa incident, which uh, I don't know, uh, Alan, if you're familiar with that story. The uh, the Kitao, um, I I'm familiar. I'm f- familiar. I I don't think I've seen it. Right. It's just yeah. They they they're very sort of uncooperative, or uh, you know, John Tenter trying to engage and and Kitao really really not. Um, and then eventually, you know, it, it was just sort of Kitao trying to, to, you know, just start shit with uh, John Tenter and Tenter like having to yell like this is pro wrestling to Koji Kitao in, in the middle of the thing. In the he yelled of the that in the match? Yeah, he just go like, come on, this is pro wrestling. Um, and then awesome. eventually the referee just just stops the match. It's like, fuck it. Um, and Kitao just, it just grabs the, the live microphone and he just yells at the crowd, you know, this is all fake. Like, why do you like this fake shit? <laughs> um, that is fantastic. But it's weird because I know Bam Bam Bigelow had a big issue with Kitao as well, right? Uh, that I don't know. I think there was like something with like, he, uh, he didn't go through with the match or something. Cause he heard Kitao was just going to like want to shoot on him or something like that. I have to check on those. There were there was something between those two. So Katao has has a history. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, like that match. I mean that that card was a disaster in general. Um, because I mean the Katao incident was was certainly very well known. That's that's the most famous one. But there was like another incident on that show. This, this another sort of cement match. Um, because like you had Minoru Suzuki on that card against uh, Apollo Sugawara. And it's like Minoru Suzuki is so th- basically SWS was why the second generation UWF A succeeded and B failed because like all of the the money from Tanaka and and Megane Super went into promoting like UWF they were they were very very sort of friendly on that from the sponsor side um, and like at the time because this was before SWS started like Maeda and, and Takada and everybody else was like, oh yeah, great. We've got good sponsorship deal. Um, but then it became obvious that, you know, that it was more than that, that, that uh, Megano Super wanted to basically swallow UWF entirely. And and that's what caused um, the second generation UWF to, to fracture. Um, and so the, the sponsorship stayed with Yoshiaki Fujiwara and Fujiwara Gumi. Um, and it was the similar deal again, where Fujiwara was like, oh, we've got a good sponsorship deal. But then all of a sudden, SWS, like, would book Minoru Suzuki and, uh, and Fanaki, Mascara Fanaki as well, um, without even telling them. Like, Suzuki wouldn't find out that he was booked for an SWS show until, like, he saw, like, the promotional materials already. Um... And so... I bet that he was delighted by that. Yeah, right. So he was already kind of, like fucking you know not gonna go into these shows in, in a great mood and like 
he had this this match on the Kobe World uh, show, same show as Kitao and Earthquake, mind you, um, with uh, Apollo Sugawara, um, who was kind of like a, an IWE guy, so very sort of getting on young in years, a veteran at this point, anyway. Um, and yeah, just like, it's, it's a surreal watch, uh, this one, just like any attempt for Tsugawara to, to tie up, like Suzuki would just like kick him away, swat him away. And it was, it was clear, just like this huge style of clash of like this traditional pro wrestler against a guy that wanted to be a fighter. Um, and that again, um, the, the referee, you know, just, just called it, <laughs> you know, just said, fuck it and rang the bell. And that was that. You know, and then and then like Sugawara like would say afterward that the 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 Minoru Suzuki didn't know the rules of pro wrestling, and then um, Minoru Suzuki just said, "You know, I didn't come in here to do this this fake shit wrestling crap." <laughs> so, not the best of luck for SWS on on Kobe World Hall, especially when they they were booking WWF guys who were perhaps the epitome of the fake wrestling crap. Yeah. Um. Very just, just surreal, surreal, indeed. But uh, a, a highlight, and I know we'll we'll get to tenure in in just a second. But but um, one thing I I did enjoy, and you said we'll we'll touch on on him in the, in the main event in the next show. But tenure and Hogan against the Road Warriors. Uh, my favorite thing in this was was tenure's entrance, where they had a giant inflatable and very very goofy looking dragon. Yeah, it was spectacular. <laughs> tremendous, tremendous one there. Um, so yeah, actually, it was reminiscent of, uh, uh, wasn't there a Ricky Steamboat entrance for oh, one of the yes. player matches? Yeah. That something similar. Yeah. 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 There you go. Yeah. Just, just super, super goofy. Let's, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's jump forward, uh, nine months. And actually SWS was the first, uh, company to run two Tokyo Dome shows back to back. Um, you know, cause everything else, there was always an intro, an interruption. You had New Japan. And then UWF, and then it was New Japan, and then All Japan, uh, then New Japan, and two SWS shows. Um, but this was the last Tokyo Dome show uh, in December of that year. In the intervening uh, years, we had uh, such such notable pop culture phenomenon as, as Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> アメリカで大活躍のスーパーハリネズミが日本でも大暴れ。その名はセガソニックザヘッジホーグ。メガドライブで待ってるぜ。セガ。Is introduced to us um in the summer. Uh but getting towards December of 1991 and uh the SWS WWF again. But this this show I think was is a much better watch Alan. Did you, did you not find that well, the striking thing about it, I agree it was a, a better watch from what I saw of both shows. And I'm not sure if this was a reason for it, but it was very noticeable. Was It just felt a lot more like a Japanese wrestling show. Mm. Same building, but just the way it was lit and the way it was shot and the ropes not being red, white, and blue. Mm-hmm. It just felt a lot more like a Japanese wrestling show. And I don't know if, if you felt this as well but the the main event was a legitimately really good japanese wrestling match that 
I think would if it happened in the Champion Carnival this year on a big Japan show with two of the big strong BJ guys clashing. I, I think it would fit right in, bar a few little um, adjustments for the time where maybe things weren't as cooperative back then or didn't look as cooperative back then as as they do now. But overall, the the logic behind the match and the the way the match has worked. Very similar to some of the matches you see with guys like Shuji Ishikawa and Daisuke Sakamoto and guys like that now. And the main event, of course, as I'm talking about, Hulk Hogan versus Genichiro Tenryu. So not something you would have expected to to be like that. No, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, to get to, to your first point first, yeah, I think like a big thing of this was just that there were notably fewer WWF guys on this show. Um, because the, the first show I think would have been just after WrestleMania that year. So there was kind of a break in the touring schedule. So they sent everybody over to Japan, right. For like a couple of weeks. Um, whereas here it was like the, the, the sort of B tier or like, you know, the, whichever touring schedule that Hogan wasn't on was in America. So they had a, like a, a good lot of crew over there. Um, and so it was a limited contingent that they sent over. And so like, you just had this feel rather than an SWS at WWF show is more like an SWS show, I think. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it's a, it's a really enjoyable main event. Actually, this one was Tokyo sports match of the year. Um, so a very sort of late, late entrant for, for Tokyo sports match of the year. I, I wouldn't necessarily put it at that level, but, um, yeah. And, and a very sort of, presented very sport with a very sort of sports feel um you know the the announcers were kind of uh selling hope that the hogan was on the back foot um because you know he he'd had such a demanding 1991 already he didn't need to take like this late title match but uh you know he kind of felt he had to add it to his schedule you know they were saying oh he just arrived in japan the night before this show so he's tired and what have you um, so they were really kind of pushing that, uh, that you might get a title change like late in the air. Um, and yeah, I mean, like Hogan has his infamous Hulk Hogan Japanese working boots on, um, you know, that, that busting out that cross arm breaker early on, that was a, that was a shocker. That's always like the, the, the gif that people, the gif or the gif that, that people pull out to say, uh, Hulk Hogan worked in Japan, brother. Right. That's the famous yeah, clip. <laughs> There was that, and I also really liked the spot at the end. I'm not sure if this was even, because they went back to another Insegiri later, so I'm not sure if there's some miscommunication here, but either way, I liked it. Hogan hits an Insegiri, and he clips Tenru and kind of falls down as you naturally would with an Insegiri, but Tenru follows him down and, like, crosses the legs as if he's going to mm. apply like a real stretch and but hogan reaches around and he kind of like face locks tenaru and it's this kind of stalemate as they both have each other in these shoot holds and i was like yes this is brilliant they're they're duking it out on the mat here in the closing stages of this hogan tenaru match i love it yeah 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 um and then when when tenu takes con- takes control there's like you know hogan always responds to like really lumpy stuff you know in the in the last episode um you know me and and john pollock talked about uh what is i think my favorite hulk hogan match which was like hogan and hansen uh from from 1990 in, in the, the tokyo dome and that was just just so lumpy and and and, and bloody and, and violent and and that was great and you know i think like tenry being tenry just uh, just brings that from hogan you know that there's a bit where he just like boots hogan in the head 
Um, and then afterwards, like my favorite part of this match from Tenyu is like Tenyu doing a, a chop, like a, a knife edge chop, just to the top of Hogan's head, just like whacking him across was the skull. Was that the one where Hogan? Was that the one where Hogan ducked down? Or yeah, yeah. Was it I, different... I think yeah, yeah. It was just like there was there was one where Hogan he clearly didn't want to take yeah. the chop. He saw Tenryu right, winding right, back, right. and he just kind of flinched down. Yeah, that was later on in the match. He opened himself up and took a few manly chops, but <laughs> there was a point where he clearly was like, "No chops tonight, brother." Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I loved it, loved it. And then uh, you know, just the the difference again with with. Uh, you know the the this American product. You're sort of strange product in a strange land. That um, you know, Tenryu kicking out of like the big leg for zero reaction, but when he kicks out the first axe bomber, like there's a huge reaction. You know, but like people still, you know, I mean, you've you've got to remember Hogan really wasn't working in Japan all that often. You know, even though he did like the the wrestling summit year before. So like the reaction to that ex-bomber was was really one i think of nostalgia um you know more than people being really familiar with this project you know because i mean hogan really hadn't been consistently in japan for like eight years at this point um so it's kind of remarkable that the tenure kicks out of that ex-bomber and everybody just like erupts yeah it was they they actually got some real good near falls towards the end there they they sucked me in the few that axe bomber kick out um uh, hogan had a big kick out from something was it the power bomb or was there i think so. there was a power bomb i I feel like there might have been another i think there might have been one really good lariat that tenru got hogan with that hogan kicked out of as well but like there was at least two times that closing stretch where i thought it was to finish and it wasn't and i was like whoa and it had that just the crowd started to roar a little bit and you you felt the tremors in the crowd as got into it more there's nothing better to me than that when there's like a kick out in japan that the crowd aren't expecting and then you just hear it and it's it's great the energy of that's awesome and yeah they got it going in this match it was it was real good stuff yep yep um, so yeah, big headlining match, but, uh, yeah, I, th- I think I know what, what's coming up. This, this, this sort of sleeper hit of this card and that, uh, you know, that we were talking about in the Twitch DMs before, and it wasn't just this match that they had in SW wrestling. They had a, like a couple more, uh, that, that were just as good, but, uh, the remarkable surprise and, uh, the remarkable coolness of Rick Martel in SWS and specifically Rick Martel and, and Naoki Sano, like, uh, really teared it up. Like, I, one of the best matches on this card. Um, and yeah, as I said, like, a couple of, uh, surprising, you'd, you'd never think that Rick Martel was actually a surprisingly good shooter in Japan, but like, they, they had, uh, kind of more shoot style matches, um, Sano and, and Especially Martel when he's, especially when he's in full on model garb. Yeah. When he's like, if it was like 1986 Rick Martel and he's out there in his basic trunks and his his long hair and like maybe you could see him being a more kind of regular wrestler. But when he's out there with the model haircut and he's he's got the arrogance and the coat and the beret, it's like you're not expecting just such a serious performance and a great performance from him. But boy, we got it. And he, uh, I, I, I would have to say that Rick Martel and Naoki Sano has to be up there in terms of the most surprising chemistry of any two wrestlers ever uh, because it's backed up by other matches and they're all good and these guys just clicked when they were working with each other and 
there's something about their styles that it just it, they complemented each other and their sequences played into each other well and yeah, they were just comfortable out there with each other and they had a really good match and they took some high risks there's a big crazy dive to the floor in this one and you've got a really awesome innovative finish where Martel whips Sano into the buckles. He does the up and over, and as he lands, he hits a beautiful bridging German suplex and pins Martel. And it was a, a finish that got a great reaction from the crowd. Yeah, just just great, and everything's so solid as well. Like you know, Sano, if, whether it's like the way Martel sort of catches him or the, the way just Sano like flings himself, but his dives just seem to connect with a lot more sort of. I, I don't know what what the right word is, but they they seemed like a lot more visceral than than most other dives, like certainly of of the area, but like today as well. Like you know, it's it's like the audience isn't as conditioned to expect a, a dive from Sano, and um, you know, it's it's almost like Martel sort of playing into that. He sort of half catches him and half just lets Sano like wallop him with with his body on on like a couple of these dives here that were just yeah, they feel really meaty. So it's a satisfying watch for sure. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. And ups and downs of, of those sort of three shows from the Tokyo Dome we've, we've looked at. Um, I kind of, I have a soft spot for that second SWS WWF show. I, I think that might be the best of the three. What, what's your pick? I would go with that too. Um, I haven't, I didn't watch everything on the WCW card, but I'm, I'm familiar with some of the matches and, and those that I'm not familiar with, I wouldn't be a, a racing down the street to try and get a copy of. They they don't look like not, uh, the, the heading... most banker surefire <laughs> right. matches. You're not washing out to see Scott Norton versus the Equalizer. No, no, definitely not. Maybe in an arm wrestling contest, who knows? <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, so I, I I think comfortably I'd I'd go with that just for the two matches we talked about and um, other fun stuff on there. Uh, it's and it's on YouTube in in uh, the home video release in split in two parts, so you kind of get it all, all all the key stuff on there, and you get the awesome closing video which I talked about the credits for this with some clips, still clips from the show, or still photos from the show earlier, and uh, the credits rolling down the screen with just an awesome song playing that just puts a smile on your face as this thing comes to a close. Tremendous. So you've got a, a marvelous like closing closing music to put on. It's, it's always like I, I don't know if you if you when you do podcast island like if you're keen to to put music on at the beginning or at the end and you're kind of like what what little things can I grab? So it's, it always it always brings a smile to my face when a guest <laughs> nominates a particular soundbite uh, to go with. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks for taking this trip down not really memory lane, but sort of rediscovering. Uh, Tokyo Dome passed with me. Um, most people listening to this podcast, you know, if if you supported Eggshells uh, Pro Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome on Indiegogo, um, you know, you'll be getting this episode pretty soon after we finish talking. Um, but most people will be getting this uh, a little bit later in the summer from the the Post Wrestling Network on wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so with that in mind, Alan, is there anything that isn't too time sensitive uh, that you want to promote on the way out here? Oh, I would just say check out Alan4L on Twitter 
and uh, check out Fighting Spirit magazine, where I regularly write articles. I'll probably have something that either just came out or is just coming out. And the Pro Rest Paradise, Alan Forel's Pro Rest Paradise. I always feel weird saying that, even though the official title is Alan's, Alan Forel's Pro Rest Paradise. I feel weird saying it because it sounds like I'm speaking in the third person. And that's something I always try to avoid doing. But yes, it is on Peter Torch VIP, and it's there on a weekly basis. Uh, I hope when this uh, is released and when people are listening to this that I have continued to be able to do so and put it out on a weekly basis and uh, lots of different content every week um, uh, covering a broad broad spectrum of wrestling, both past and present, and something for everyone, I like to think, with the Pro Rest Paradise. Join us. And of course, uh, you should be heading to eggshellsbook.com or picking up your copy of Eggshells for Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome uh, from where books are sold. Um, but you can also listen to the next episode of the podcast companion as we're going to take a look at 1992 with, uh, with my guest, Paul Lazenby, uh, joins me for this episode. And I know because I've already recorded it, but this is a really one that you, you don't want to miss, especially if you want to hear stories about Minoru Suzuki and Maskatsu Fanaki in the Pancrase Dojo. Um, and you do want to listen to those stories. It, it's quite <laughs> that sounds awesome okay cool so uh thanks once again alan and uh everybody be good to each other and uh, you can listen to us Bye.